This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Job, chapter 42, verses 1 through 10. And that's in the Pew Bibles on page 446. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer, not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. How are you all doing? I hope uh, you're able to make it to the family movie night. If you were here for the announcements, Nigel gave the announcements. And I got to say, I've never seen anyone more excited about the sound of music than <laughs> Nigel. He, in staff, he just goes on and on. We have a staff text thread, and he just continually talks about how great, <laughs> how great Julie Andrews is. I mean, it's fantastic. So you should come just to watch Nigel enjoy the sound of music. Good to be there. So any case. But for now, we continue on in our sermon series, The Joy Set Before Us. We're exploring the various pathways to joy. And uh, the punchline, as I've said a number of times of the sermon series, is that joy is a person and his name is Jesus. And the more, therefore, we encounter the person of Jesus, the more we will encounter joy. I'm thankful to Pastor Manfred for preaching a great sermon last week on the connection between joy and gratitude. And this morning, we look at the connection between joy and suffering. And for that, we're going to be turning our attention to the book of Job. And no other book in the Bible addresses the issue of suffering quite like the book of Job. But if you've ever tried to read the book of Job, perhaps you found it a bit perplexing to make sense of. And it can be hard to make sense of the book of Job because the book of Job is trying to make sense of a hard reality, the reality of the disconnect between God's promises and our experiences. How do we make sense of God's promises when they don't match or seem to match with our experiences? That's the great question that underlies the book of Job. Now, the message of the book of Job, all of it comes together, and the answer to the question doesn't come until the very last chapters of the book of Job. So, to make sense of the book of Job, you have to take the whole entire book together to really get the force of it. So we're going to be, this morning, 
taking a tour through the entire book all the way to the passage that was just read for us here in the last chapter of the book of Job. Now, Job is 42 chapters long, so that means we got a lot of ground to cover. So I'm not going to give you my normal stunning introduction that will go on and on. We're going to just stop it right there. And without further ado, turn to Job chapter 1, 1, and let's get started. You're going to need to keep your Bibles out. I will say that. But that's good news because all of you have brought your Bibles to church with you this morning. I'm so grateful for that. If perhaps you forgot your Bible, that's fine, because we have the Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. Get it out. It's going to be useful because I'm going to be walking us through the entire book of Job, and I want you to be able to, to track along with me in your copy of God's Word. So the very first chapters of the book of Job provide for us the opening scene, as it were, for the book. The first two chapters provide for us the opening context, and then what follows after the book of Job, all is understood within light of what happens in the first two chapters. So in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, we meet Job, the main character uh, of the book, a man who is described in the very first verse as blameless and upright, fearing God and shunning evil. Job uh, is a man with a large family and a man of tremendous wealth. The text tells us he has 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. He has seven sons and three daughters. This is an extraordinary amount of family and property that Job has. And in verse 3, we read that he is the greatest among all the peoples of the East. So he's a, a great man, and all of this wealth hasn't gotten to his piety. He's so pious, the text tell us, tells us, that when his children would gather together to have feasts and parties, Job would offer sacrifices for each of his children afterwards, just in case one of them had sinned during the party. He took his faith very seriously. He took the condition of his own soul and their souls very seriously. He wanted to honor and follow God. And so Job is fabulously rich, he's happy, he's pious, he has a big family. Who could ask for anything more? He has everything that a man of the ancient world would want. And then we get to verse 5 and the beginnings of the plot of the book of Job. All the angels gather together one day in God's presence, and the Satan, the adversary of humanity, comes with them. And the Lord asks Satan, where have you been? And Satan says, well, I've been roaming to and fro about the earth. And the Lord says, well, perhaps when you were going to and fro about the earth, you saw my servant Job. There's no one like him in the whole world, God says. He's a blameless man. He's righteous. He shuns evil and he fears me. And Satan says, well, yeah, that's all well and good because you've put a hedge of protection around him. So who wouldn't worship you and fear you and keep your commandments if you I put a hedge of protection around them. But if you remove this hedge of protection and give me access to Job, then we'll see what his heart is really like. So God says, sure. And he takes away the hedge of protection and Satan begins to bring toil and calamity into Job's life. And what follows in a single day in verses 13 through 19 is certainly the most catastrophic calamity that could ever befall a man. In a single day, through a series of remarkable and clearly supernatural tragedies, Job loses all of his property in a single day, his great wealth. He loses all of his servants. And last, and certainly not least of the tragedies, he loses all 
of his children. The house falls upon them in a great whirlwind. Everything is gone. And the only people left in the household are the ones who are telling him about everything that he's lost. And yet remarkably, while Job is reeling from the shock of it all, we read his still righteous response in verses 120 through 22. So look here at verse 20, chapter 1. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. So Job holds on to his integrity. He holds on to his blamelessness. He doesn't charge God with wrongdoing. He worships the Lord. But Job's troubles are not over yet. Satan comes again to the Lord, and through another exchange, he incites God to take away the hedge of protection around Job himself. And so the protection around the person of Job is taken away, and Satan comes and afflicts Job with tremendous boils all over his body. But again, Job holds fast to his integrity, and he honors the Lord. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 9. His wife has said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But then listen to Job's response in verse 10. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women who would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So again, Job is still blameless at the end of all this suffering and all of this persecution from the Lord, from the, from the Lord Satan ultimately, or uh, the Lord ultimately through Satan, which Job doesn't really understand what's going on. He doesn't know any of that. He just knows that all these things have befallen him. And he still holds on to his integrity. He still uh, is blameless. Everything is gone. Yet he worships God. And then Job's friends come to him in verse 11. His three friends, they've heard of his tragedy and his calamity, and so they've come to try to comfort him. But when they get there, they are so dismayed at the sight of him, the loss of all of his property, all of his wealth, his physical uh, boils. And they tear their robes and they weep and they throw dust on their head and they sit with him for seven days in the dust and the ashes and they don't say a word. So that's the opening scene of the book of Job. Job in ruins, sitting with his friends in the ashes, pain and misery, too deep for words. All right, now before continuing on with Job's story, I want to make three observations about Job's and his friends' theological framework that's going to be important for understanding the dialogue that's about to take place. Because in the coming chapters, there's going to be an extended dialogue between Job and his friends. And in order to understand what's going on in the dialogue, we need to make sense of the theological framework or the theological world in which Job and his friends are living. So first, at this point in the biblical story, the biblical history, God has not revealed the hope of the resurrection or the life to come. We've talked about this in other sermons and other contexts, but it's helpful to always remember this backdrop when we're reading in the Old Testament, particularly before the coming 
of this news about the resurrection. For those that lived prior to the word about the resurrection to come, everything was very murky and shadowy about the afterlife. As far as they knew, when you died, you went into the grave, and that was pretty much it for you. Your story was over. So as bad as this story would be for you and I, imagine how much more troubling it was for Job. We, as New Testament believers, at least are able to look to the resurrection as the great day when everything will be made right. But, but Job did not have the comfort of the life to come. He had to try to figure out how to make sense of his suffering without the hope of the resurrection. Which leads to the second observation, the theology of Job's or Job's theology of suffering. In the theological framework of Job and his friends, it was understood that God took care of the righteous and he brought ruin upon the wicked. Now, the story of Job seems to be, from what we can tell, set within the days of the patriarchs, but scholars generally agree that it was written during the days of the kings, the Jewish kings. So this is after the giving of the law and after the days of the judges on into the days of the kings and when many of the psalms were written. And so here, this means that the story of Job is operating with the same basic theological framework, and we can see this as we move throughout the book of Job, but operating with the same basic theological framework that we find in the Old Testament law and in the psalms. And in the Old Testament law, if you might recall from times that we've talked about the Old Testament law, when Israel feared and followed God in righteousness, God promised that he would bring blessing and prosperity upon the people. But if Israel were to turn away from God and to not follow his laws and to live lives of wickedness, then God would bring punishment and calamity and ruin upon the people. And this was the whole framework of God's revelation in the law. You can find it at the end of Deuteronomy when the prophet Moses sums up the people's relationship to God and his relationship and obligations to them. And this same idea is found in the Psalms. So listen to these verses from Psalms 37, uh, 17 through 22. The psalmist says this, For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The heritage of the righteous will remain forever. They are not put to shame, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like smoke. They vanish away. Those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. So the righteous inherit the land and the blessing of God. The wicked are cut off. That was everyone's expectations in Job's day because this is what God himself had revealed through his law and through the psalmists and the prophets. So Job and his friends are trying to make sense. They're trying to, to process and make sense of Job's experience through that theological lens. And that leads to the third observation and the great dilemma of Job's story, which is Job's blamelessness, his righteousness. The scene, the opening scene, goes out of its way to assert Job's integrity and Job's righteousness. I mean, the very first verse, the narrator describes Job as a blameless man, righteous, upright, fearing God, shunning evil. And then if that weren't enough of an endorsement, 
then God himself says the same thing about Job. God says that there's no one like him in the whole world upon the earth. And God's own statement about Job is that Job is blameless and upright. He says it once in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, and then again in 2, verse 3. And then even when all the calamity falls upon Job after these two attacks from Satan, his responses, the narrator says, leave him still blameless. He is still without sin. He does not sin in the way that he responds to those tragedies. So Job's righteousness, his blamelessness, leaves Job and his friends in a bit of a theological quandary. Job is a truly, truly beyond normal righteous man who has fallen under the same judgment as the very, very wicked. Something that God himself, at this point in biblical history, has said that he doesn't let happen. I mean, the psalmist in 3725 declares that he has never seen the righteous forsaken or the children of the righteous begging for bread. And here, God has let an entire house fall and kill and crush the children of the righteous. Now, we have, as Christians, we have a category for, for suffering, for the suffering of the righteous. We've learned that from the teachings of Jesus and his example to expect suffering in this world and to place our hope in the next. But Job wasn't a Christian. He wasn't taught by God to expect suffering. He was taught by God to expect the blessings of a righteous man, not in some future life to come after death, but in this life, in the here and the now. But now, not only is he not getting the blessings of a righteous man, he is getting the calamity of a wicked man. And how on earth are Job and his friends supposed to make sense of that? So Job's story isn't simply a story about suffering. It's a story about theological confusion in the midst of suffering. What's happening to Job, theologically speaking, shouldn't be happening. God's promises don't seem to be matching Job's experience, and it doesn't make any sense. All right, now with those observations in hand, we go back to the story of Job. Job and his friends will spend the next 30 chapters trying to make sense of why it is that God has said one thing, but Job is experiencing another thing. This is the great debate that takes place in the book of Job for 30 chapters. Now, it would take too long for us to move through each individual chapter, so I'm going to summarize the, uh, the ensuing conversation that takes place in very broad strokes. So this will be where a lot of page turning is going to take place. But we start in chapter 3, because Job is the first after seven days to break the silence and he bitterly laments the day of his birth. You can read this in verse 11 of chapter 3. He says, Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me, or why the breast that I should nurse? Job is basically saying, It would have been better if I had just been born dead than to have suffered all that I have suffered. And he goes on in the remainder of chapter 3 to carry on that basic lament. And then his friend Eliphaz, the first of the friends to come, he begins to speak, and he follows the main line of their agreed-upon theology. Look at 
chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. Eliphaz says, Now remember, Job, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. Essentially, he's saying, now listen, Job, we know the innocent don't perish, and we know that the wicked are consumed. So he's being gentle here, but he's pointing the finger back to Job. Essentially, he's saying, the problem must be with you, Job. And then Eliphaz, in verse 12 through 21 he, he claims to have received a special vision, a revelation of a spirit that comes to him in the dark of night. And this is fascinating. So Eliphaz, in verse 12, he describes this visitation from a spirit. Listen to his words. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid the thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones shake, a spirit glided past my face, and the hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence, and then I heard a voice. So the spirit is about to speak, and it's going to bring insight about Job's situation. Can a mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with air. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. This mysterious spirit that comes to Eliphaz, that gives him secret revelation, is basically saying Job really isn't blameless. If God charges his angels with error, how much more does he charge mortal men who are made of dust? Now, you have to wonder who this spirit is, right? I sense some sour grapes in his accusation that God also charges his angels with error. But the spirit is telling an untruth, and Eliphaz is accepting it as true because Job is blameless. And here the Spirit is saying that Job is getting what's coming to him. And then in the rest of the chapter, Eliphaz basically gives Job the theology of the Psalms. Humble yourself, Job, and commit your cause to God. Own your sin and accept God's rebuke. And then God will be gracious to you, and he will heal you. But Job responds then in chapters 6 through 7 with a strong declaration of his innocence. Say what you will, Eliphaz, I have done nothing to be reproved of. I have not been wicked, nor have I committed some secret sin. So then Bildad, the second friend, he begins to speak in chapters 8. And in chapter 8, he follow, also follows the main line of their theological framework, but perhaps not as gently as Eliphaz. In 8 verse 3, this is what Bildad says. Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Does God pervert justice, Bildad says? And the obvious answer that Bildad expects is no. And then Bildad says, and if your children have all been killed, well, God has just 
brought judgment upon them for their transgressions. Imagine telling that to a parent who has just lost all of their children in a tragedy. But Bildad goes on to say, but listen, Job, your life has yet been spared. God has been gracious to you. So plead to God for mercy before it's too late, and he will yet restore you. But again, Job sweeps all this away in chapters 9 and 10. He bitterly asserts his innocence and then just as bitterly asserts that none of it really matters anyway because God has no regard for his innocence. And then he laments his plight to God. So much of Job's complaints throughout the book of Job are not even directed to his friends. He begins to turn his laments and complaints to God. So look here in 10, 14 through 15. Chapter 10, 14 through 15, Job is complaining to the Lord and he says, If I sin, you watch me and do not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am guilty, woe to me. But if I am in the right, I cannot lift up my head, for I am filled with disgrace and look upon my affliction. Job is basically saying, If I'm guilty, you condemn me. And if I'm innocent, you condemn me. Job is quite literally saying, I'm damned if I do and I'm damned if I don't. There's no way that I can get off from underneath your judgment, God. What's the point of my righteousness? What's the point of my innocence? You have no regard for it. Where is your justice? And then in chapter 11, Zophar, the third friend, speaks, and he too follows the main line of their theology, and he's the least gentle of them all. He calls Job's lament and his grief babble, and then he outright tells Job that he is guilty of sin. He says that Job should consider himself lucky, because God is exacting less from Job than his guilt deserves. I mean, how much more could God exact from a sinner than he has exacted from Job? And then he calls on Job to repent of his sin and to humble himself before God. And once again, Job bitterly and angrily dismisses what his friends say. And this same basic interaction, one after another, with Job's friends goes on for the next 20 chapters. Job's friends get more and more dogmatic claiming that righteous people don't suffer like this. God himself has said so. So therefore, you must be a sinner. And by the end of the book, they are accusing Job of all sorts of sin, robbing the poor, corrupt business dealings, abuse of power, taking advantage of widows and orphans, pride. And Job keeps getting more and more adamant about his innocence. And again, I want to I want to underscore the theological confusion in all of this for Job. His theological framework and his friends tell him that righteous people don't suffer like this. And yet he knows himself to be righteous and he's suffering. And this is Job's greatest pain throughout the book. Not only is his material suffering great, but he no longer knows how to make sense of God. And over and over throughout the book, he gives voice to this angst, to his confusion about God's dealings with humanity. Look in chapter 23, getting close to the end of Job's laments. Chapter 23, verses 1 through 5. Job expresses his confusion. Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. 
Job says, I have all these questions about God's ways of dealing with the world and dealing with me and his justice. And if I could just find him, I would come and I would bring my arguments before him and he would have to give account of himself and he would have to answer me. I would bring my questions to him. And over and over throughout the book of Job, Job is bringing these questions to God, but he's only getting silence. He's not getting answers. He's saying, answer me, God. Tell me how to understand you, how to make sense of life. Your promises are not matching with my experience. Eventually, Job's friends give up trying to convince him he's a sinner, and Job gives up defending himself. And now at this point, a fourth friend named Elihu begins to speak. Now, Elihu has stayed silent the whole time because he's the youngest of all of the friends, and he said, I was going to give wisdom a chance to speak first, but since there is no wisdom in this place, I'm going to now speak. So he begins to speak. And his speech spans chapters 32 through 37. And basically, Elihu rebukes everybody. He rebukes Job's friends for accusing Job of wrongdoing, even though there is no evidence of such. And then he rebukes Job for saying that since he's innocent, God must be unjust. And all the while, as Elihu is speaking, God is drawing near. You can see this in the text, and it's So fun to read it, but as Elihu begins to speak, he begins to reference the approach of God in a growing whirlwind and a storm. Job has been calling out to God for answers, and now God is coming. Job has called down the thunder, and the thunder has come. And in my mind's eye, I see Elihu speaking passionately as the storm begins to grow around him, his voice growing louder above the approaching thunder of God's presence, the flashes of lightning illuminating the landscape, the wind blowing his cloak and his hair as he delivers his rebukes. And just as God arrives, I picture the last words of Elihu that he speaks then in chapter 37. He proclaims at the end of 37, out of the north comes golden splendor. He's seen the the glory of God. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own heart. And then I... I was writing the screenplay for this. There would be a loud crash of thunder and then all would go silent and then the Lord would begin to speak. And in chapter 38, we read that the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And he said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Note the beginning there of verse 1. The Lord answered Job. The the Lord answered Job. Job had questions, and God had answers. But what follows, the remainder of chapter 38 and on and on, is a steady barrage of divine questioning. So listen to this sampling here from chapter 38. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? 
On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take Hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. Have you ever entered the storehouses of snow or have you seen the storehouses of hail which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on the land where no man is? And on and on it goes for four chapters. The Lord asks Job to explain the cosmic wonders of the natural world, the hydraulic cycle, the ocean depths, the animal world, the might and power of the great sea creatures. And finally, he asks Job to explain Leviathan, the greatest of all the creatures that God has made. And the questions come without relent until we get to chapter 42 and Job's response. This is what was read for us this morning already. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked me, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. You said, hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job is overwhelmed by God's questions and by God's presence. And he retracts his questions and he repents. And then in verses 7 through 11, we read that Job is vindicated by God. His friends are rebuked for speaking, for speaking wrong about God. And then Job's fortunes are restored twofold. All right, now what are we to make of Job's story? It's a dramatic story, but what does it teach us about suffering? There's a whole sermon series worth of things to say here, but I want to focus on only two takeaways. The limits of our God-given theology and the necessity of of God's presence. So the limits of our God-given theology. The Lord's barrage of questions was intended to reveal the limits of Job's knowledge. Job didn't know how to answer the Lord about how the stars were hung in the sky or how the snow fell or how the oceans were formed. And if he could not understand the workings of the natural world, how much less could he understand the workings of the supernatural world and the workings of of divine justice. 
the great tension for Job and the great error of his friends was that they assumed that God had told them everything about how righteousness and justice worked in the world. But he hadn't. He had only told them how it most often worked, how God most typically did things. And their theology wasn't wrong, but it was incomplete. Job's friends had followed the main melody line of God's revelation as though it were the whole line. In a symphony piece, there's uh, the melody line of the piece. But sometimes in very sophisticated symphony pieces, there will be a counter melody that shows up in the midst of the, of the musical piece. And all of a sudden, the counter melody seems to be at odds with the direction of the main melody line. And it's not until you get to the end of the melody line when the the composer writes a resolution and you see how the counter melody and the melody all come together and make sense. But Job and his friends, they had the revealed melody line. But God had not given him that yet the resolution. And they were experiencing these counter melodies and they didn't know what to do with these counter melodies. And so they ignored the counter melodies and just held to the main line as though it were the whole line. And Job's friends didn't know that there were future revelations in the divine composing of God's plan that would bring resolution to the counter melodies that were present in the main melody of God's activity. Future acts of God in the timeline of history that would one day resolve the question of suffering. Truths about the suffering of the innocent and the resurrection of the dead that could only be known in the light of the suffering and resurrection of God's own innocent son. And God had not yet revealed any of that. That knowledge wouldn't come for centuries and centuries and centuries. Which is to say that Job and his friends simply did not have the resources to logically and theologically make sense of Job's suffering. And that's because God had not yet given the resources to logically and theologically make sense of Job's suffering. And the great error of Job's friends was that they left no room for mystery. And so when they came upon the perplexing suffering of innocent Job, rather than simply saying, we don't know, we don't know, doesn't seem to fit, Job, we're sorry and we don't know. Instead, they doubled down on the main line of what God had revealed to them. And in their arrogant pride, they bludgeoned Job. And there's a lesson there for all of us who take God's revealed theology seriously. How often do we fall into the same error as Job's friends, assuming that because God has told us some things, even many things, that he therefore must necessarily have told us all things? How often do we think that the main melody line is sufficient to explain or to explain away the counter melodies? But God has not told us all things. He has not given us the resolution of all things. And even as New Testament Christians on this side of the resurrection, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that even now we see through a glass darkly that there are things we cannot 
understand that not everything has yet been made known. We have more resources to make sense of suffering than Job did. But even so, we still face the confusion of the experience of when God's promises don't seem to match with our experiences. Maybe that's you this morning. Do you have questions about suffering? Do you have doubts about God's justice and about God's goodness? Do you look at the suffering of the world or perhaps the suffering of your own life? You have questions and ask why. Perhaps you know the truths of what God has revealed to us in Christ, but you still find yourself with unresolved questions and confusion. That's okay. Join the club. The final resolution to all of our questions about suffering will not be found in this life, but only in the renewal of all things. There remains yet a great work of God that Jesus will do when he renews all things that will at the last resolve every question that we have about the God of love and the world that he has made. And only in that great work of renewal renewal will we at last understand and know how all things fit together. But for now, we must hold to the main line of God's revelation, even if we don't know how to make sense of the counter melodies. And we must hold to the main line humbly and with our ultimate hope in the God who has given us revelation, more so than having our ultimate hope in the revelation that God has given. Because the God who gives the revelation is complete in himself, but the revelation that he has given is limited by our capacities to understand. And that leads to the second takeaway from Job's story, the necessity of God's presence. Look back at what Job says in 42, verse 5. He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear back before all of this started. I I had heard of you. I knew of you. I had information about you. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Now I have seen you. The ultimate resolution to Job's questions was not God's answers, but God's presence. When God came to Job, God didn't explain anything to Job. He didn't tell Job about the challenge with Satan. Listen, Job, there was this thing going on up in the heavens, and and would that have mattered anyway? Would that have given you comfort? It wouldn't have given me comfort. And God didn't come and explain to Job the complexities of theodicy or justice or righteousness or suffering. The only answer God could give to Job sufficient for his suffering was himself. He came to Job and he said, find your peace and your answer in me. I hold all things in my hands. I understand all things. I am the beginning and the end the source and the summit of all that is. I cannot do wrong, and I will not do wrong, for I am truth and righteousness itself. And even though it doesn't make sense to you, 
It makes sense to me. So look upon me and be answered. And in the presence of God's greatness and power, Job was answered. And that's what God says to all of us in Christ. He has sent Jesus not to give us an explanation, but to give us himself. Because the only answer for human suffering, the only answer for human existence is the person and presence of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The God who in his Son has entered into our suffering. We don't find our peace in the idea of God. We don't find our peace in the truth of God. We don't even find our priest our peace in the theological content of God's revelation. We find our peace in the presence of God himself. So are you suffering this morning? And I know that some of you are. Find your hope and your peace and your joy in the presence of God in Christ. Perhaps like Job, you are having trouble finding God. Then like Job, call out to him in honesty and frankness. Pour out your discontent and your doubt and your confusions to God. He will come to you just like he came to Job. He's not at our beck and call. He's not a genie in a bottle. But if we call down the thunder, the thunder will come. And when it comes, he will come with grace and healing kindness. And we know that this is true because of Jesus, because Jesus is God's coming to us. The person of Jesus is God's answer to our suffering. Jesus is God's firm statement to a hurting world that he loves us, that he cares for us, and that he is working to renew all things. The ending of Job's story is a, it's a sign, it's a type, it's a, a shadow of the ending of the Christian story. Just as God restored all things to Job, so too God will restore all things to us, and then some. Maybe not in this life, certainly not all in this life. But when we hold to Jesus, when we behold the presence of God in the face of Christ, we will know that whatever the future holds for us, it will be, in the words of Jesus, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. So whether you're in a season of suffering this morning, or perhaps you're just trying to make sense of life. Let me point you to the person of Jesus, to the presence of God. Maybe as you listen to it this morning, you, you have a hard time understanding how the presence and the person of God could be the answer for all of your questions. And all I can say is it's because you haven't seen him yet. Because once you see him, you see that he is the answer to all things. And it makes sense to you that it doesn't make sense. 
But somehow he himself contains the truth of the whole universe in his presence and his person. So I encourage you, I exhort you to find and to keep seeking after Jesus in the midst of your suffering. It took Job 30 chapters before God showed up and a lot of lamenting. And it may take you 30 chapters of lamenting to find Job, but don't despair. Keep seeking after God and he will reveal himself to you in the face of Christ. Father, thank you that you've given us Jesus in the midst of our confusion and despair. And thank you that you didn't try to sit us down and explain the algebra, the trigonometry of how justice works. Our eyes would just glaze over. It wouldn't make sense to us. What we just need to know is that you know. And we need to see you in your glory and in your goodness and in your kindness in Jesus. And that will be enough for us. So Lord, I pray for any here this morning who need a fresh glimpse of you or perhaps a first glimpse of you. May you reveal yourself to them and show them how you yourself are the answer to all things. And may they find their answer in your son. We pray this in his name, amen.